0: Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Once Upon a Time. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. For many years, publishers, authors, and fans of literature have debated who the best author of all time is. Some argue Miguel de Cervantes, who wrote Don Quixote, and published it in 1612, and it has since sold an estimated 500 million copies. Others are fans of Charles Dickens, who had more than 200 million copies of his 1859 classic, A Tale of Two Cities published. Others are passionately insisting that the crown of best author of all time go to William Shakespeare, who of course uh, was known for such classics as Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet. However, since the close of the 20th century, there has been a growing support for another author who has had a transcendent impact. And his name is Walter Elias Disney. In the late 1920s, Disney, along with his brother Roy, started an animation studio that uh, introduced us to beloved and timeless characters, such as Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and Goofy, and Pluto. Well, as business grew in the 1930s and 40s, Disney and his brother Roy began to produce full-length animated features such as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Pinocchio, Dumbo. Uh, Disney had this ability to tell great stories with lovable characters and a whimsical humor. And it was appealing to all generations, adults and children alike. Loved his stories. In the late 1950s, as many of you know, Disney's pioneering spirit and exceptional creativity led to the construction and opening of a colossal amusement park not far from here, Disneyland in 1955. Since his death in 1966, Disney's company has blossomed into an industry leader in publishing and film and television. And While I cannot argue in good conscience that Cervantes or Dickens or Shakespeare or Disney deserve to be called the greatest storyteller of all time, I can't do that because my heart belongs to another storyteller. I I am a fan of Jesus Christ, and I think he is the best storyteller of all time because his stories are in the best-selling book of all time, and his stories are continuing to make an impact on the lives of people even today. There is no other storyteller who was able to succinctly package truth, and have it change hearts for eternity like Jesus did. Whether you agree with me or not, I think we can all agree that we love stories. We we like stories, and I think it's because we like stories that instruct us, inspire us, and then identify with us. It's one of the reasons we, we love movies and television and YouTube. We love a good story. And certainly we can see that in today's day and age, because a good story can gain traction and take off and go viral, as they call it. And it can be something as simple as a baby with a a laugh or a certain cry or a dog that does a funny trick. Well, for these reasons and more, we're beginning a new series today on the parables of Jesus called Once Upon a Time. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 13 and pull out the sermon notes in the worship folder you received when you came in today, Matthew chapter 13. And if you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can loan one to you. We want you to have a copy and we have plenty to share. Uh, Before we dive into today's text, I thought it would be good to kind of provide some background or foundational information by starting with the question, what is a parable? Uh, a parable is a short, memorable story from real life with a powerful truth embedded in it. Or uh, the way I would succinctly define it, and I have for years, is this. A parable is a, an earthly story with a heavenly truth. It's an earthly story with a heavenly truth. The New Testament word for parable comes from two Greek words put together that mean to throw alongside. Uh, The word visually depicts something physical or common next to something spiritual or abstract. And this, in essence, is what Jesus did with parables. He would take something physical from common everyday life, and then put it next to, alongside of, a timeless spiritual truth, and then wrap it all up together. That's what a parable is. The resources that I'm using for this series, as I've been doing research, uh, count anywhere from 27 to 32 parables total that Jesus told. Some authors use a more narrow definition of parable, so they would count less. Other authors and scholars have a little broader definition of a parable, and so they would obviously count more. But give or take 27 to 32, somewhere in that range. I'm still counting. I'll let you know what I come up with. Uh, but some, uh, the, there are, sorry, let me gain my uh, trait of thought here. The synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, contain all the parables. There are no parables in the Gospel of John. The bulk of the parables that Jesus told are in Matthew and Luke. Only six parables appear in Mark. One of those is exclusive to Mark. It's called the parable of the growing seed. It's in Mark chapter 4. Now, there are some duplicates in Matthew and Luke that are the same. So, for example, today, uh, in Matthew 13, we'll be looking at the parable of the sower. It's also talked about in Luke chapter 8. But in addition to that, there are also parables that are exclusive to Matthew and exclusive to Luke. So they only appear in the one gospel. Matthew tends to have a different style than Luke does, which I find interesting because he was, uh, Matthew was a, a tax collector, a money guy, so he tends to be very brief and matter-of-fact black and white in his writing style, whereas Luke, the doctor, interestingly, is more colorful. He, he tends to add a little more dialogue and personality to his character's. It's worth noting that parables are not allegories. I want to mention that before we go any further. An allegory is uh, has, a, has fine, it's basically meaning in every detail, but that's not the case with Jesus' parables. He Some details had some meaning, but not all of them. So we have to be careful as we work through this series to not overanalyze Jesus' stories. Uh, they are also not fables, Uh, Many of you know from probably a public school literature class that a fable is a fictional story that uses animals or inanimate objects to teach a moral. Well, all the characters or things mentioned in Jesus' stories were real. They were real-life people or real-life things, and nothing odd took place like animals talking in Jesus' parables. And so, again, parables are real life situations that contain spiritual truths. Now, why did Jesus speak in parables? This is another common question. I mean, why didn't he just say it like it is, like Pastor Carey does? Well, um, he did sometimes do that. But there were other times that he chose to use parables. And he explains that in Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Now, the parable of the sower that we're going to be looking at today is introduced, if you look at your Bible text, it's introduced in verses 1 through 9. Then Jesus explains why he teaches in parables. And then in verses 18 to 23, he explains the meaning of the parable he just told. And so follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 10. And then the disciples came and they said to him, Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. It says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed Well, what's Jesus saying here? Let me boil it down for you here. Uh, In addition to fulfilling a prophecy given approximately 700 years earlier in Isaiah that the Messiah would speak in parables, in addition to that, he gives two other reasons in the verses we just read. And these are letter A and B on the introduction section of your notes. First of all, Jesus tells parables because they paint truth. Now, I don't mean this in a a diminishing way. I'm trying to use some alliteration here. But I, I was trying to come up with a P word that meant to illuminate. And I did extensive looking in a thesaurus, and this is the best thing I could come up with. The stories that Jesus told paint truth. And he did this because he wanted to do more than just have us identify with the story and instruct us or inspire us. Uh, To those who wanted to hear the spiritual truths that he was sharing, Jesus' parables revealed lessons about his kingdom in a colorful, uh, memorable way. Uh, Or to put it another way, Jesus used parables to transform black and white truths into high-definition color. By doing so, the Lord was able to continue training his disciples while outwitting his critics. Letter B, here's a second reason that he gives for teaching in parables, and that is that they protect truth. Jesus didn't want everybody who was listening to know what he was talking about. When he taught in parables, hard-hearted critics would often get frustrated, and they'd get so frustrated that they they couldn't understand him, and they were frustrated that they couldn't understand him because they wanted to grab sound bites that they could use to arrest and prosecute him, and so Jesus, being shrewder than them, spoke in parables, and his parables also revealed whose hearts were already hardened against him and made it difficult for his enemies to collect evidence against him. So his parables protected the spiritual truths he was trying to impart to those who wanted to believe in him, and his parables also gave him time to establish his ministry so that he would not be seen as a political leader trying to build his own kingdom at the height of the Roman Empire. You see, many of Jesus' parables, especially the ones here in Matthew, have to do with his kingdom, the kingdom that he was going to build and spread with his gospel message. And if the Romans had gotten word about that, they would see him as a threat. Now, let's look at one of the first and most popular parables that Jesus told, the parable of the sower. I'm going to read Matthew 13, verses 1 through 9. And the same day Jesus went out out of the house and sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But the sun rose, and they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. There are four types of hearts that Jesus describes here in this parable. And he's explaining in the parable how people respond to his word or to the gospel, more specifically. And so let's look here at your outline. Here's the first heart that he wants to make us aware of, and that is the calloused heart. The calloused heart rejects Jesus as Savior. And as you write that down, let me also give you the big idea, which I forgot to give you, I apologize, the big idea is this, a person's heart condition determines their soul's salvation. A person's heart condition determines their soul's salvation. For those of you that are visiting here today, the big idea is my way of trying to put the sermon in one sentence, to boil it down into something as memorable as possible, so that hopefully you'll leave with this truth. A person's heart condition determines their soul's salvation. Why? Because the parable of the sower explains why some children who make a profession of faith growing up in a Christian home end up seeming to walk away from the faith after they leave home. The parable of the sower explains why some friends and loved ones say they are Christians, but they show no signs of spiritual life in their daily lives. They don't mature in the faith, They don't go to church, they don't read their Bibles, they don't serve the Lord. They just coast. In the story here that we're reading, the seed is the word of God, or the gospel. The sower is anyone who shares the gospel. It could be me, it could be you. And the soils represent four types of hearts on which the seed can land. Jesus told this parable, which is in all three synoptic gospels, because he wanted us to understand how and why people respond differently to the gospel message. And so with that, number one is the calloused heart rejects Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you would look in your Bibles over at verse 19. In that paragraph, starting verse 19, Jesus interprets the parable. And so he says here, then the parable of the sower, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Now, when he talks about the path, Jesus is referring to... uh, Soil that's next to the roadside, as maybe we would see here in town or out on the interstate. It's soil that's been compacted some. It's got some gravel in it, but it's, it's hard. It's not good soil for planting seeds in because it's near the road. Other scholars think it possibly could have been... Um, the aisle between crops that was hardened by farm workers going up and down the aisle during harvest time. And, you know, they would tread a path of, and pack down soil. Uh, regardless, the idea that he's trying to get is that when the seed was cast, when the gospel is cast, the seed bounces right off the ground or bounces right off the heart. The calloused heart is one that has become so hardened by sin that it is numb to the things of God. And so as a result of that, Jesus says the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. The seed of the gospel is unable to take root in that heart because it just bounces right off that packed down hard heart. And it gives Satan time to snatch up the seed. Or more literally, to to talk that person out of changing their heart. Satan persuades and influences them to just continue sinning and running from God and rebelling against him. The Apostle Paul confirmed that this happens when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.4. You can jot that down if you want in your margin and look it up later. But 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says that Satan blinds unbelievers so they cannot see or understand the gospel message. Now, I need to be careful to clarify here, this does not exempt any unbeliever from their responsibility before the Lord. Uh, The evil one just simply encourages the rebellion to continue uh, that they've already chosen to pursue. You've heard me say before that only three things last forever. God, his word, and the souls of men. Uh, The Lord has made his word and the souls of men last forever because they are valuable to him. In fact, it could be argued they are the two most valuable things to him, our souls and his word. Charles Spurgeon made this even more clear when he wrote, consider how precious a soul must be when both God and the devil are after it. Do you think that which hell craves for and that which God seeks for is not precious? Sobering, isn't it? So why does the evil one come and snatch seed off the hard heart? Because he wants souls, and he wants them forever. In fact, our souls are so precious to the Lord that he willingly gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, the person with the calloused heart usually has no interest in spiritual things, does not fear God, usually does not think past the grave. They only think about life here. And if they do think past the grave, they usually have an unbiblical view of eternity. The person with a calloused heart may believe they're good enough to earn their salvation but still loves their sin and wants to continue doing it or doesn't think their sin is that bad. The person with a calloused heart loves the darkness of their sin more than the light that Jesus offers. And they often feel no conviction or guilt for their sin. Now, something I want to make sure is very, very, very clear about this calloused heart, this first Bit of ground, and that is this when an individual rejects the true gospel, it is not because there was a problem with the seed. There's nothing with the seed that needs to be fixed, but rather, there's a problem with the soil. The seed doesn't need to be changed. Next. Look at verses 20 to 21 as Jesus continues to explain this parable. As for what is sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word immediately and receives it with joy. And yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Here's the second heart that Jesus is describing, and that is the shallow heart. The shallow heart fails to persevere in faith. The shallow heart fails to persevere in faith. When the Lord speaks in verse 20 about rocky ground, he was using imagery that all of his listeners would be well acquainted with. Farmland in the Middle East is filled with limestone rock beds that at certain locations rises up to be just inches beneath the surface. And so with roots unable to grow deep and absorb moisture below the surface, crops that were planted in these conditions where the soil was shallow and the limestone rock beds were near the surface, well, obviously what would happen is uh, there would be a quick abundance of uh, sprouting of foliage from these crops trying to capture any rainwater that they could above the surface, But then when the hot afternoon sun would dry the foliage, the plant would die because the roots had no moisture to sustain it. And so everybody hearing Jesus explain that knew exactly what he was talking about because they'd seen it every day of their life for years. It was common. He then says in verse 20, the one who hears the word immediately receives it with joy. People like this that have a shallow heart one of the things that's very difficult to do with people like this is to question their salvation because they're so excited. Their emotions are contagious, and they, they get fired up when they first hear about the Lord, and they respond with zeal, and it kind of motivates some of the old fuddy-duddies in the church that, man, i got to get my fire back. And, and so we like that. But what's difficult is that There's no repentance of sin, and they don't count the cost of discipleship. Uh, These verses about the shallow heart remind me of a couple friends that I, I had in college who made professions of faith through the campus ministry that I was involved with, and Now I'm friends with him on Facebook, and just like many of you do when I I scroll on Facebook, it's interesting to see where people I went to college and high school with are at now and what they're doing and what their families look like and how many kids they had. But sadly, there's two men that I remember making professions of faith who went to Bible studies with us, who did campus outreach. They enjoyed fellowship with us. And now there's no evidence of any faith anywhere on their social media feed. In fact, there's plenty of evidence to say they are not saved. They remind me of fireworks that we uh, light off on Independence Day. They shoot up quick and it looks great, but once their powder runs out, there's nothing there. There's no real fruits of repentance. There's no real faith. They just disappear. Sadly, I've seen this happen in my own ministry over the years when someone responds to an invitation that I give or I've even baptized people who were around the church for a while, maybe served and came to Bible study and worshiped and then they just sort of disappeared. They left. They stop serving, they stop coming to church, they stop coming to Bible study, and they won't return calls, because the thrill is gone. The faith is no longer fun. It got hard. Now, is this always the case when someone responds to the gospel with enthusiasm? No, of course not. It's not. And and, and should we celebrate professions of faith? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think we need to celebrate them with caution. And here's why. And you might want to write this down because I want you to remember this and never forget it. We need to remember that not every profession is a conversion. That's what Jesus is saying here. Not every profession is a conversion. You've heard me say it before. Last year when I preached through John's letters in 1 John, he spends almost the entire five chapters of his letter trying to deal with the issue of too many people claiming to know Jesus that don't walk with Jesus. And you might remember me saying in that series of messages that it is throughout the New Testament. There are always going to be more people who claim to know him than actually know him. The person with the shallow heart is the -the flash-in-the-pan responder. They may speak Christianese, they may be spiritually active, but they are a fair-weather Jesus fan. So long as they perceive prayers being answered and fellowship is sweet, they will go through the motions of Christianity. But when things get hard... When there is a cost to having faith in Christ, they will bail. There's no life change, and there, as a result, they are not a true Christ follower. Notice in verse 21, it says, Immediately he falls away. Some, sadly, have tried to argue that this represents a believer that has lost their salvation. Uh, that is not possible because that would violate the doctrine of eternal security or perseverance of the saints that our church believes in and holds to. And let me just say, there's like truckloads of doctrine and scripture to support eternal security, and there's maybe three or four verses that would suggest it's possible to fall away and lose your salvation. And so when we do hermeneutics, we look at the weight and number of scriptures that support the doctrine, and although there may be a couple that raise questions, we don't throw the whole doctrine out. Instead, with closer examination, what Jesus meant here when he used the words fall away, actually in the Greek text, he uses a word that means to be repelled, to be offended, to take offense. Uh, The root word was used elsewhere in the Gospels to describe actions or the offense of unbelievers. Jesus is basically saying that when this superficial fan discovers that following Christ comes with persecution and rejection, and there's a cost to it, they want nothing to do with the faith. They are offended, and they are repelled away from the gospel. So when someone appears to have fallen away from the faith, it is not because Jesus was unable to help them persevere, but rather that they were never saved in the first place. A person's heart condition determines their soul's salvation. Next, if you would look at verse 22, as he continues to work his way through the story. As for... What was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Here's number three on your outline. The third heart is the crowded heart. The crowded heart loves the world more than Jesus. The crowded heart loves the world more than Jesus. Unlike the first two patches, the ground here with the thorns has enough soil and depth for the seed of the gospel to germinate. But sadly, the soil is contaminated with too many thorns and weeds that have already established themselves. Their desire for acceptance from the world, their lust for material things, and other idols crowd out the gospel so it can never take root and change their heart. So the person with a crowded heart, they want Jesus to be their Savior, but not their Lord. But with Jesus, it's an all or nothing. He won't allow his two offices to be divided. It's... You take me as Savior and Lord, or you don't take me at all. The person with a crowded heart wants to be forgiven for their sin, but they don't want to forsake their sin. They overload their schedule, so they have no time to worship, walk, or work for Jesus. They're too busy, because they've got all these other things going on in their life. They may intellectually understand the gospel. In fact, they could even explain it to you but the gospel has not changed their heart. And so they have no life change, no fruits of repentance, and thus they are not a believer either, not a true Christ follower. When someone is too busy to make time for the Lord, it is not because they are a victim of life's demands, but rather that they love their life more than they love Jesus. That is is what the crowded heart struggles with. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, No one can have two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus demanded, and he deserves, a total allegiance to him, an all-inclusive, devoted love to him, being first place in all things. A person's heart condition determines their soul salvation. Next, look at verse 23. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. And he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Here's the fourth and final verse. Soil and heart, it's the changed heart. The changed heart produces fruits of repentance. The person that he's describing here receives the gospel message with humility and gratitude and responsiveness. They understand how great their sin is and they understand how great a Savior Jesus is. They know they need grace and mercy, and they receive it from him. And because they understand how lost they were without Christ, the changed heart gives everything they have to Christ, meaning they sell out for him. They don't hold back. They feel indebted to him. They follow him with their whole heart. So the person with a changed heart hates their sin and pursues holiness. Because they know it was their sin that put Jesus on the cross. And it was their sin that separated them from him. The person with the changed heart brings every aspect of their life under the lordship of Christ in submission to him. They don't hold anything back from him. They don't say, okay, Jesus, you can have all this, but man, I just want to have this relationship right here, If I just have this. Or Jesus, I'll give you all these things. If I could just have my finances, let me do the finances the way I want to. I'll give you everything else. Jesus is always like, no, I want everything. The person has a changed heart. Love. They love and they learn and they apply God's word. And and if they go just a, a few days without God's word, they they feel a hunger and they miss it and they want to get into it because they know it's living and active and it feeds their soul. The person that has a changed heart shares the gospel. They demonstrate obedience over time and there's spiritual growth that can be observed. And they are a true Christ follower. Now, a few observations That I want to make here about the parable, in addition to what Jesus did. Notice that just as the sower cannot make the seed grow in the other soils, he or she does not have to make the seed grow in the fertile soil. The seed that lands in the fertile soil grows automatically, it doesn't have to be told to grow forced to grow, threatened to grow. It grows because it's alive. Because that's what living things do. In the same way, just as a believer sharing the gospel cannot make someone reject Christ, neither can a believer make an unbeliever receive Christ. Regardless of whether it's your child or grandchild, your sibling, your spouse, your neighbor, your coworker, your subordinate at work, you can't make them receive Jesus. Just like you can't make them reject Jesus. It's a work of the Spirit that has to be done in their heart. And just as we cannot take the blame when someone rejects Christ, we also can't take the credit when somebody receives Christ. The parable of the sower is also a pin that pops the balloon of easy believism. Easy believism is a movement that's been flooding our nation for the last 150 years. In the latter half of the 19th century, certain preachers began diluting the gospel in order to make it easier to swallow by removing the need to repent of sin and to surrender to Christ. The result was an explosion in decisions for Christ. Great numbers. Numbers that could be counted and claimed as a sign of God's blessing and success. But in reality, these peddlers of God's word, as Paul would call them, they created a watered-down gospel that's a false gospel, and it's one that A.W. Tozer in the mid-20th century described it as so weak that if it were poison, it would not hurt anyone, and if it were medicine, it couldn't cure anyone. So it's no surprise that a, this false gospel of, hey, man, you just, if you just believe that Jesus died for you and loves you, and you just ask him to forgive you, you're good. If you just come down, walk down the aisle, just sign this card, raise your hand, you're good. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to repent of your sin. You don't have to forsake your sin. You don't have to follow Christ. Just say the prayer, and you're good. Well, who wouldn't want that? That's popular in America. You mean to tell me I can be forgiven and have the promise of eternal security and go to heaven, and I don't have to change? I don't have to ask the Lord to forgive me and show that I'm sincere and in a woman. Forgive by leaving my sin. I don't have to walk with Jesus. Sign me up. I'll take that. Hands are going up. And sadly, what it creates is thousands of false converts who think they are saved when they are not. Because false preachers gave them a gospel that Jesus never, ever preached. So here's how this parable shreds the myth that many are getting saved and that salvation is possible without repentance. And I want this to be so clear. I'm going to put this on the keynote screen behind me. Please notice, as we just studied the parable of the sower, four hearts, four soils. Notice, only one-fourth of those who heard the gospel received it. Three out of four rejected it. Notice, out of two, two out of the three that rejected it, looks like they had accepted it. That is scary. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14: you don't hear this quoted very often, but you'll hear it quoted here at Vanguard. Why is the road? Wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the road that leads to life. Well, what's Jesus saying here? He means the road is wide, it's going to hell, because it's easy and there are many going there. The road is narrow that leads to eternal life in heaven with Jesus because it's hard. And it's also few that are going to go there. Why? Because few want to repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Few are willing to leave the sin that separates them from God and to follow Christ wholeheartedly. Jesus doesn't want to be few. It's because sinners, so few sinners, are willing to do that. Few. Few. This is what inspired J.C. Ryle to write this. According to the men of the world, few are going to hell. But according to the Bible, few are going to heaven. Message Message received? (laughs) According to the men of the world, few are going to hell. According to the Bible, few are going to heaven. If you look at God's word honestly, if you study it objectively, that's what it says. So, applications. What do we do? Here's three that come to mind. And I'm going to give you a heads up. Number two is going to be a little long. First, application that comes to mind. What do we do with this parable now that we've studied it? The first thing that comes to mind is check your own soil. Check your heart. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, after Paul spends five chapters, sorry, 12 chapters in 2 Corinthians, defending his reputation as a minister of the gospel, because the Corinthians had scrutinized him up and down, The Apostle Paul turns the table on these immature believers and challenges them to see if they are in the faith. He says, Test yourselves. What does that look like? Well, revisit the time in which you claim you received Christ. Go back and say, Did I really receive Christ? What happened? Did I just understand it in my head, or was my heart actually changed? Have I, is there any proof and evidence since then that I have a relationship with the Lord? Have I seen answered prayers? Am I changing? Would others say that I'm changing? Do I feel conviction for sin? Do I have a desire to grow in my walk with the Lord? Do I desire to see him glorified in my life? Those are questions that you can ask yourself. Why would Paul write that to the Corinthians? Because just like any horticulturalist knows, occasionally you have to test the soil in which you are planting. And the humble man or woman knows that occasionally they need to check their heart for signs of life. Have you really repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? Or are you just familiar with the gospel story? I didn't ask whether you know the gospel. I'm asking, do you know Jesus? Because there's a big difference. Don't fear what people will think, especially if you've been coming to church for years and you've been claiming to be a Christian for years. Don't let your pride get in the way of maybe admitting, I've been religious for years, I've been a Pharisee for years, trying to keep all the rules, but I really didn't know Jesus. Don't let your pride keep you from admitting that, and end up spending eternity in hell. It's not worth it. Of course, if you have questions or concerns about your relationship with the Lord, I am always available after worship service, and I can be contacted during the week if you want to set up a time to meet. I care for your soul, and I want to make sure you are right with the Lord. Next, number two, objectively discern the soil condition of the people God has put in your life. Objectively discern the soil condition of the the people God has put in your life. This is going to sound like a soapbox, but it's going to be a little... how should I say? A little side trail of truth dispensing that I need to do. I need to debunk a lie... From the world that too many believers have adopted in an attempt to sound spiritual and gracious. It's based on a misinterpretation of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Judge not, that you not be judged. Don't judge me, why are you hating on me? Phrases that the world uses that are now beginning to get into the church. The lie is simply this, and it's loosely based on Matthew 7, verse 1. Discerning or assessing where someone stands with the Lord is judgmental. That's the lie. It is not judgmental. In reality, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, is about having a critical spirit. And what Jesus meant when he was talking about that in the Sermon on the Mount very succinctly, is if you're going to criticize someone, make sure that you use the same standard to evaluate yourself. Hint, hint, God's word. It's okay to criticize someone so long as you use his word, and you already have criticized yourself using his word. Use the same standard, the same measure. That's what he meant. Now, the rest of the New Testament says one of the worst things you could do is assume that someone is saved who shows no fruits of repentance and then you not share the true gospel with them. Just like a medical doctor assessing a patient, believers are called to assess the spiritual condition of people in their lives and then respond accordingly. We should never say to a doctor who says to us we need to lose a little weight During a routine physical, we we shouldn't say to the doc, stop judging me, man. You ever weighed yourself recently? No, no, no. We would listen to the doctor because he cares for our health, and we want to receive that feedback, even if our spouse has maybe been telling us for a long time we need to lose weight. But because the doctor said it, we'll do it. That's another story. The New Testament is filled with examples of Jesus and the apostles making spiritual assessments. Did you know that? (laughs) We are told to avoid throwing pearls to pigs in Matthew 7, verse 6. The disciples were told by Jesus, and this is okay for us to do the same, to shake the dust off our feet if multiple attempts have been made to share the gospel and they're met with opposition. That's Matthew 10. That requires a spiritual assessment. We are told by Paul in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6 to watch how we act in front of outsiders. Outsiders means those who don't know Christ and they are outside the church. That's a spiritual assessment. How do you know who's outside? You have to look at them and decide. Are they saved not saved? You act one way in front of saved people, another way in front of unsaved people. That's what God's Word teaches. It's not saying you be two-faced or hypocritical, Instead, what the New Testament teaches is that there is a certain way believers should treat each other, and there are certain ways that believers should interact with unbelievers. That requires assessing. It's not judging. You're not condemning anybody to hell, and hopefully you're not putting anybody in heaven that shouldn't be there either. These are all judgments that believers are called to do in order to be discerning, be discerning. We're called to test all teaching to make sure it's not false. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. That requires judgment, assessing. Is what this guy on TV is saying true? Is what Pastor Kerry is saying true? Does it line up with the word? We're called to do that. Now, even I discovered while writing this message that one of the books I'm using for research for this series discourages this kind of discernment. I was shocked yesterday. Overall, it's a good book from a reputable author, but I was was already thinking about this issue. At the end of the author's chapter on the parable of the sower, he says, not everyone who makes a profession of faith is saved. And then in his next point, he says, we should never try to judge who is saved and who is not. And I went, what? How can you say point three and then say point four? How do you know if somebody's made a profession that they're not saved, but then you're not supposed to judge whether they're saved or not? It didn't make sense to me. So the Bible makes clear distinctions about how believers are to interact with each other versus how they should interact with unbelievers, and Here's why the lie of judge me not is being spread. I'm going to boil it down. The deceiver does not want you and I to share the gospel. And one of the tricks he will use is to convince us that certain people in our lives are already saved when they are actually not. He will try to convince us that the person that has the shallow heart Or the crowded heart is saved, so we don't need to talk to them about the Lord when we actually should. Now you might be wondering, how can I tell whether someone's born again? Here's a simple way of putting it without getting into another sermon. If the faith they claim to have hasn't changed them, it hasn't saved them. If their faith hasn't changed them, it hasn't saved them. Satan's strategy works because if we conclude that someone is saved when they're really not, we won't share the gospel with them. And he goes, I won. I got another soul. I tricked another believer. So, soapbox done. Application number three, and it's a short one. Finally, third thing. What can we do? How do we respond to Matthew 13 now that we've studied this? Pray, proclaim, and trust God with the results. The parable of the sower is another one of the Bible's encouraging reminders that although the salvation of others doesn't depend on us, the Lord still wants to use us to help people populate heaven. What a wonderful honor that is. The Lord measures evangelistic success by the number of proclamations, not the number of conversions. We can control one, how often we share our faith, but we cannot control the other, how often people receive Christ. We can't control that. Our job is to simply be faithful messengers who lovingly communicate the undiluted gospel and leave the results to the Lord. Well, I appreciate you listening patiently and taking good notes. As we close, I wanted to tell you a quick story about David Livingstone, a famous Scottish physician and pioneering missionary during the 19th century. He served the Lord in Africa and had a burden for lost people. Livingstone wanted to pave a path because no European at that point had ever uh, traversed the continent of Africa, and he wanted to do so in order to open doors for the gospel to be preached. Well, as he passed through the great Kalahari Desert in Africa, Livingstone was warmly welcomed by a tribal chief named Sakomi. On one occasion, when Livingstone and Sakomi were sitting together, Sakomi said to Dr. Livingstone, I wish you would change my heart. Give me medicine to change it, for it is proud, proud and angry, angry always. And so Livingstone began to lift up his New Testament to Sokomi and was about to tell him the only way to change his heart. But Sokomi interrupted Dr. Livingstone, saying, No, 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 I wish to have it changed by medicine. To drink and to have it changed at once, for it's always proud and very uneasy and continually angry with someone. And after this, Sokomi got up and walked away. You must choose to change your heart towards the gospel. And if you can't do it on your own, you can ask the Lord to help you. And He will. A person's heart determines their heart condition, determines their soul salvation. Please don't forget that. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I realize that this message is difficult to hear because it confronts things and challenges beliefs that some of us have been taught that we believe for years about you and about the gospel that are not true. There are there are there are lies that American evangelicalism for all that it's all it's good and all it's bad. There are some lies that some of us have been brought up to believe. One of which is that 3 out of the 4 hearts talked about today can be saved. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus revealed that that is not true, and that Jesus had the wisdom to to address this issue, the fickleness of man's heart and how proud we are, how stubborn the human heart is to even try to pretend to be a believer who's saved, but Live another life, Father. Please, if there is anyone here today that is doing that, would you show them? Because we we remember what Jeremiah said: For "The heart is deceitful and wicked; and no one can trust it. It deceives even ourselves." And so, Lord, please, would you show? If there's anyone here today who thinks they're saved? Maybe who's got a shallow heart or a crowded heart, would you save them? Would you bring them to repentance and faith in Christ? And Lord, for those who are, maybe they're doubting, uh, would you encourage them? Would you comfort them? Would you remind them of the proofs and the things, the milestones that you have done in their life to show them that they belong to you? Lord, would you help us as a church to be a church that is graciously bold with the gospel, clear but loving? Would you help us, Lord, to be a church that shares the true gospel? Because false gospels always leave us feeling empty. Would you help us be a church that lives out the true gospel? Sold out for Jesus, walking with Jesus, submitted to his lordship, repenting of our sin, pursuing holiness, glorifying Jesus in all that we do, loving him more than anything else. Help us to be that kind of church. And finally, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that through Christ, we can have forgiveness and peace and eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for offering up your son to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the price, the the debt that we accrued because of our disobedience. Thank you, Lord, for that. Would you make that even more real to those of us who know you today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.